Welcome to the CineScare Podcast, and I am one of your hosts, Matt Speak. And I am also one of your hosts, Joe Jans. Joe Jans, there would be no, there would be no world of CineScare without the wonderful Joe Jans. Coming to you tonight live from Rock Island, Illinois, home of oh, the Blues Brothers. Yes. Rock Island, what was that again? Home of the Blues Brothers. That's where they're from. Oh, yeah, yeah. I yeah. thought they were from Rockford for some reason. No, no, no. They're from uh, Rock Island, Illinois. That's mm. why in the district of Rock Island, there are there's like a park bench in the middle of the district that has statues mm. of uh, Jake and Elwood Blue sitting on there. Oh. It, and, if, and if you all out there notice that Joe is sounding much sexier this week, it's uh, because he's in a different location. He feels... Joe, if there's one thing I know about Joe is he feels sexy at work. I, yeah. I, it's, it's a pleasure coming to work. Every day for yep. other people, yes, and, and me as well. Well, Joe, we are in March now, and uh, this is our twelfth episode. By the way, can you believe it? I never thought we'd hit a dozen. I didn't either. And I, it's, it's not even a baker's dozen. I was just about to say, I can't wait till we hit our 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 baker's dozen. <laughs> then it's official. Then we've made it. Then we've made it. Yep, I agree. Um, well. We th- this week we have a special, um, I guess, kind of theme. We're breaking down The Shining, or at least talking about The Shining. Breaking down sounds like um, we're going to be going way more in depth than we probably are. <laughs> can, but, can we officially call it The Shining? Or are we going to get sued? Uh, why? I, I thought it was a it was a Simpsons joke. Oh, uh, Treehouse of Horror. What 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 was that? I don't remember. I mean, I remember the the Shining episode of Treehouse of Horror, but I don't remember what. The, uh, the uh, groundskeeper Willie, he uh, Bart was the one that had the Shining, and uh, when he was confronted about it uh, by the groundskeeper Willie, uh, Bart said he had the Shining, and uh, groundskeeper Willie sort of cut him off midway through and said, Shh, "What do you want to get sued?" Oh, so they oh. had to call it the Shining for the whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> the shinning. That's right. Now I re- now I recall. You want to get sued? Uh, so yeah, that's that's going to be what we're mainly talking about. But I do have a few movies that I watched uh, this week that I want to touch on. Uh, did you watch anything non-shining related? I uh, no. I dove really deep into my research for just the shining. But there's so many different. Shining related topics to go into, right. so uh, yeah. no, I played hooky from everything else. Uh, well, I did. Uh, I watched a couple, a movie called The Endless, uh, which uh, when did it come out? 2017. Two brothers return to the cult they fled from years ago to discover that the group's beliefs may be more sane than they once thought. Uh, this one uh, was really good. It was. Uh, uh, it's a uh, I don't think they're brothers, but there's a couple guys who directed it. And um, let me see. Their names are Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson. They also produced it. But they, they're kind of indie filmmakers, and uh, they they did The Endless. They've also d- done a movie that was sort of a – well, I wouldn't say it's a prequel. And I don't know that The Endless was a sequel, but they did a movie called Resolution – that is centered on a couple of characters who come back in the endless. Uh, but the, I wouldn't say the endless is a sequel. You can watch one without having watched the other just fine. Uh, but it, it was very interesting. It kind of played around, both of them played around with the idea of, of, uh, time, time travel, to, not really time travel, but, but, uh, pockets of time and we, time weirdness and that kind of thing. It's, it's kind of hard to explain, I'm not sure that I could completely explain it, but that's totally fine. I I really enjoyed it, especially the endless. I thought resolution uh, was maybe about 15, 20 minutes too long. I thought I kind of a little redundant a couple points, but uh, the endless I thought was a fine film. Uh, and then I watched a a medieval horror movie, which you don't get many of, called Black Death, uh, and it was about um, some knights who go looking for witches, basically. And uh, that was good. I liked it. It had... Um, uh, They're really putting it out there with a the name. Black Death. I mean, yeah, you can't right. throw a name out there like that and not you know, deliver. 
Right, exactly. Well, and it actually had to do with the bubonic plague, too, but they're bl- trying to blame the, the spread of the plague on witches. And so uh, sh- it's got a great cast. Uh, Sean Bean uh, plays the main knight guy, and I think he was born to play medieval characters. He was, uh, he was Ned Stark in Game of Thrones season one, if everyone remembers that. And uh, Eddie Redmayne was in it. He played a, a monk uh, Caris Van Houten, who, if you are familiar with Game of Thrones, played the Red Witch in that. Um, and uh, there's some other people, uh, you know, you wouldn't necessarily know them by name, but if you saw their faces, they, they're familiar. They, you've seen them in other things. So I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a, a good uh, medieval horror. I thought it was a solid, just a solid movie. Uh and then it's not really horror, but I watched a documentary called Shoah on the Holocaust. Uh, I've seen it before, but I watched it again. It's fantastic. And then the other day, sort of horror adjacent, not really horror, but I saw the prom, uh, the movie Promising Young Woman, which is I highly recommend that whether you're a horror fan or not. It's an excellent, excellent movie. And um, uh, I, I think, you know, I, I've been thinking about it and a lot of people have complained that it didn't go further, especially really lean into the violence and the revenge um, idea. But it's sort of a, I guess, kind of a rape revenge movie. So in that way, it's sort of horror adjacent, but but it doesn't really go full Tarantino revenge. It's uh, it's it's more, I guess, subtle in the way it does it, and, and really ultimately more realistic in the way it's portrayed, I guess, in a way. Uh, and so as I've thought about it since then, I, I felt like it made sense that it didn't go full Tarantino, uh, that it was way more realistic in the way uh, things wound up, especially. So anyway, I highly recommend that one, especially. It's a, just a good movie in general. Boy, that Black Death with uh, Mr. Bean sounds inviting. Yeah, it's a good one. It is <laughs> a good a, one. That was a Mr. Bean joke. Man. Oh, how how was that a joke of Mr. Bean? Do, do you know who Mr. Bean is? Yeah. Okay. Well. Oh, you said Mr. Bean. Oh. Mr. Bean. Yes. <laughs> a Mr. Bean horror film is something this world could really use around now. I I would probably watch a medieval that. Medieval yeah. Mr. Bean horror. Yeah, film. yeah. Yeah. I I think it would be hard for that movie to be scary, but. Um, Actually, I uh, I totally forgot. There was a movie that I did watch that is sort of in the horror jo- uh, genre. Yeah. Uh, Belko Experiment. Have you seen this? No, I have not. Absolutely love this film. And this is as much of a horror film as, let's say, The Hunt is. But uh, Belko Experiment came out in 2016. It's a psychological experiment, which I just, I mean, I, I think about this movie regularly when I come into the office. But it's a uh, an office in Colombia that's been recruiting Americans to come over to Colombia to find jobs. And uh, everybody that's there stands to be uh, – there's a risk, constant risk of being taken uh, by, you know, captives somewhere uh, into the jungle and held hostage. So they put these little tracking devices in the back of everybody's neck for insurance purposes. And then all of a sudden everybody's at work in their office building one day and the shutters close and the doors all lock and a voice comes over the intercom saying, if you don't kill one person in this building in the next half an hour, we're going to kill three. And everybody thinks it's a big joke. And then all of a sudden after the end of 29 minutes, somebody's head explodes and the experiment continues on and on where you are given the task to kill more people in a longer period of time. And if you don't, the voice coming over the intercom will kill more and more people. And it's a wonderful psychological experiment. And if you do work in an office building, you'll play that game in your head about, wow, if that was me, who and which one of my coworkers would I kill first? But uh, it is a fantastic film. Uh, it, it's even got uh, John C. McGinley in it, is one of my favorite actors, and he does a tremendous job in there. Uh, I can't recommend that movie enough. I can watch that one thousands of times. Well, I'll have to check it out, The Belco Experiment. Um, okay, so on to The Shining. Uh, the... This is a movie that I, I suppose 
uh, is right up there with probably my favorite movies of all time. Uh, and and if I was to give a top ten horror list, it would be at one or two. If I gave my top ten movies of all time, just any genre, I would be one or two. Uh, it's it's I I think it's just masterful. Uh, I loved it from the minute I saw it, and I I really don't. I don't really remember when I saw it exactly the first time because I, I'm pretty sure it was on HBO and I, um, or, or, you know, I may have actually, now that I think about it, I probably actually watched the television edited version of it actually first, I bet. Um, now you're still talking about the television version, but the Stanley Kubrick version, right? Right. Yes. Okay. No. I, I mean, I, the version that they played on television, okay. you know, after sure. after it had been out a couple years or whatever, then they pl- they show it on TV, and I, so I, I may have seen the TV edited version uh, first, but I, I just don't really recall. But I just remember the from the moment I saw it, the minute those first credits go up and that camera is flying uh, over the that lake, the helicopter shot is flying over that lake, uh, which I've uh, did some research, and that lake is actually in uh, Montana. Uh, so Stanley Kubrick is famous for scouting out locations and spending like a year just looking for locations before he even begins shooting, or longer. Uh, and and so I thought that was a, just a beautiful opening shot. And of course the car going and the music and and the sounds that are layered over the music. Um, just I, I was sucked in from the minute and I it was there's a quality to it overall, but also in, just in general that just draws you in almost a hypnotic quality from the pacing to the editing to the music and, and uh, uh, just the way it's all set up and everything that the way that the credits come rolling up in the screen and, and, and all of that. Um, I, I just, I, I, I just got caught up into it and it was one that I watched like all the time, you know, from, from the moment I saw it, which would have been early eighties, I would imagine all the way through high school, college. I still, you know, I, I, it's one that I watch pretty much, I would say almost once a year. Um, and I, so that's why I feel drawn to watch it. Of course, a lot of that had to do with just Jack Nicholson, you know, and my, uh, desires to be an actor myself and seeing Jack Nicholson's performance was, I I really um, uh, was taken with it, and it kind of just became a part of my like persona—not really my persona, but but it became a part of my personality. Like people knew I was a big Shining fan, Halloween or whatever. But but uh, the whole Jack Nicholson angle of it, I I just uh, adored his performance and the film in general. All the performances, though, and you know, obviously the one that the the one that gets talked about the most, of course, is Jack Nicholson. Um, but the other performances are fantastic as well, from Scatman Crothers uh, to Shelley Duvall. I mean, Shelley Duvall is amazing in this, and what she went through playing that part is unbelievable. Uh, how about you? When did you when did you first do you remember? I'm it? I'm in the same boat you were. I, you know, as a kid, I'd heard about The Shining um, when the movie came out. But of course, I didn't get a chance to see that in theaters. That came out in 1980. I was eight. But uh, I probably just like you caught, you know, an edited version on television somewhere and watched it religiously. And it probably wasn't until later in high school or early college that I actually got to see the original unedited version. And immediately after seeing it, went back, and that sort of started my fascination with Stephen King novels and my desire to read as many of them as I possibly could. Now, granted, I think Stephen King is a fantastic writer, but he's it's a labored reading in my opinion. Um, he takes 17 pages to tell what other people could tell in a paragraph. So, but you know, it's because of that, that he does such an excellent job setting up the mood, establishing whatever, what the scenes even look like, what the actors are feeling. And he does a fantastic job navigating you, the reader through the overlook hotel. And I remember after seeing the movie first and then going back and reading the novel, I felt like I was robbed because of just how 
simplistically different the source material is from the movie that I had, you know, instantly fell in, fallen in love with. Um, I then later on found out that Stephen King hated this adaptation, which just boggles my mind even to this day. And, uh, I, I mean, I've, I've grown to love this and I, I don't care what Stephen King says. I, I think Stanley Kubrick took a nice platform and built up a, uh, a wonderful, wonderful horror movie that scared the daylights out of me and still, you know, sends shivers down my spine. And I'm assuming that everybody that's listening to this podcast now, um, I'm assuming we don't have to sort of recap the story. We're going into this episode just assuming that everybody has either seen The Shining, read the book, or seen the TV adaptation. So, Yeah, I mean, we are going to talk about it from beginning to end as with as much time as we can put into it. But So if you haven't actually seen The Shining, then you might want to not listen to this episode until you watch it. But it, also, I, I doubt anyone who is listening to our podcast has not seen the shining, but yeah, um, spoil, spoiler alert. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. Right uh, off the bat. So I, and I, and I agree. Um, I, I, there's a big difference between the book and the, the, the movie. I do love the book. Uh, I don't know that I'd say I love it equally, but I do love the book a lot. And it was written in a, in a period of Stephen King's, uh, writing, uh, career when when he was still pretty good at streamlining his things uh, or his stories uh you know obviously the stand was one of his earlier books too and and it wasn't exactly streamlined it was a massive book but but he still had a lot of books that did get to the point you know and i thought that the shining didn't have too many uh sidetracks that that weren't part of of the overall story um and i think there were obviously the differences are uh there there are many many differences one of the big ones of course is that the book doesn't have the hedge maze right it's got hedge animals uh which i loved in the book i thought it was really scary in the book the kid I, I, do you remember that part where the the Danny, come alive yeah yeah danny's outside playing and all of a sudden he hears something and well it snowed so the the hedge animals all have snow on them and then he's mm -hmm. he's playing and he hears a shuffling sound and he looks up and one of the hedge animals doesn't have snow on it anymore right and then he goes back to playing and he hears something else and he looks up and that now a couple of them don't have snow and like one of them is sort of facing him, you know, but they're frozen, of course, when he looks at them. Uh, so I, that part of the book like terrified me. But I, like you, or I think like you, you didn't read the book before the movie, right? You read. No, I saw yeah, the movie yeah. first and then that's what inspired me to get the book out. Yeah, same for me. Uh, and I, I had actually had read several of his books before I read The Shining because I had figured I've already seen the movie and I just wasn't excited to read the book after having seen the movie, but they, they are different enough that, uh, it, one doesn't really spoil the other and they end very differently. I mean, generally they, they end pretty differently. Um, and obviously things that are happening in the middle of that book are very different from, from what happens in the, in the, the, the movie. But, that from what I've looked at is Stephen King's major problem with the movie was in the character of Jack uh, Torrance that he felt like in the movie Jack Nicholson's already crazy from the beginning and he wanted that there was no place for him to go from there um, and I, I I feel like it it works though because Jack Torrance. Uh, I, I, I get what he's saying. I, I do think that, that Jack starts out crazy <laughs> from the beginning, but but it, it's a little more realistic that way when you think about it because no one's going to be convinced to kill their family with an axe just because some ghosts told them to do it, right? So so he had to have already had something going on in his head, it, and it couldn't just be alcoholism because alcoholics aren't killers you know it's it's a different thing so uh 
that that whole part of it, and you know, his argument that that there's no place for Jack, there's no path for Jack to go, it doesn't really make sense to me because a normal, you know, you can't start out like Stephen King's version of The Shining, the TV miniseries, right? Jack Torrance is pretty normal guy. He's a recovering recovering alcoholic, but he's not a violent guy. He's you know, um, he's a pretty normal guy, and then he goes crazy by the end, but. To me, that's really hard to do. It's easier to do maybe in a book, but it's really hard to do that over the course of two hours uh, to have a guy go from normal to an axe-wielding killer um, over the course of two hours. So I, I, I think that having him already start out, like he had a screw loose, uh, makes more sense to me. It's a little more realistic to me. And then it also... It gives a different, uh, a, a different, ener- different energy to the beginning. Whereas instead of going to a place where unsuspecting something is about to happen to them, there's a sense with the music and the the overhead shot uh, of them driving. And I don't mean just Jack driving. I mean when he goes and gets the family and is driving. There's this sense that they are heading toward their fate, like an 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 inevitability about it. You know, so. I don't know. That's my little spiel on on why I think that Jack Nicholson's portrayal of Jack Torrance um, already being crazy from the beginning actually makes sense. See, I'm going to I'm going to counterpoint you. I never thought he was crazy at the beginning. I thought he was on edge. You know, he's a man dealing with his family in that time. He's had lots of setbacks. The um, the issues that he's had with uh, physically abusing Danny because of his alcoholism. And, you know, not really having a career, I I think he's on edge. But when he's on the interview scene uh, at the beginning with or at the hotel trying to interview to get the job, I I can watch that a thousand times. I never really take that as, you know, a man at the precipice of madness. I think he's just optimistically looking for a new stage in his life where things are going to finally start looking up for him. And he seems very, again, optimistic about how he can finally get his writing project. I mean, things are looking up for him. He's got a solid job. He's not going to get bothered. He's going to be able to finally concentrate on his work. And, you know, he's turning a corner. That morning that he gets woken up and uh, she, his wife's made him breakfast, I think he's, uh, you know, still quite sane at that time. But I think it's the I think what Kubrick does a fantastic job of is making us all along with Jack feel claustrophobic and secluded in this gargantuan wasteland of a hotel. I mean, this is the biggest architectural structure that guy has in. You know, he goes from this cramped little apartment to this huge, you know, rolling estate of a hotel and he feels so shut in and, and cut off from everybody else. And I think that's what actually starts leading him down the path of insanity. And then of course the alcoholism, uh, finally setting in, that's, that's what finally pushes him over. But I, so I guess, like I said, I, I never really thought of him as always mad. I think that like, you know, especially in the car drive up there and, and Danny keeps asking him questions and he's like, Yes, you know, and 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 then he he Shut looks up, like yeah. he's, he's already done with the family, you know, and yeah. he's like, for God's sake, you but, know. <laughs> but I think that's just a typical See, honey, dad thing. See, honey, I mean, it's I'm, okay. I'm not, ex- I'm not exactly saw it on ins- the television. <laughs> I'm not exactly insane, but I've gone on car trips with my kids and they see, keep asking me questions over and over again. And I'm not chopping them up with an ax, but I'm, you know, on occasion a little short with them. <laughs> um, so, but that is another thing that you bring up is the, um, the architecture of the, the mot- of the hotel. Um, which for those of you who don't know, that is an actual hotel. It's called the yeah. Stanley hotel. Uh, originally it did not have a hedge maze either. Yeah. But I, I believe it I, I don't does think, now. I don't think it does now either. I looked at, I, um, I, I, thought I, they did. I looked at Google earth of it. There's no, uh, unless oh, okay. they've added it since Google earth did it. But, um, that actually isn't the Stanley hotel. The, um, the place where they shot it was, is the Timberline lodge in, um, Oregon. 
the it's the it's based on it's based on the book was based on uh, the Stanley Ho- Hotel in uh, Colorado or no Estes Park, Colorado. Colorado, yeah. Yeah, uh, and it's it's still set there and and everything, but actually the overlook that they used in the movie uh, was the Timberline Lodge, and so. Only the exteriors. The interiors were all sets built by Kubrick and his people in, I think, London, where he liked, where he lived, or England, where he lived. Um, and so that was all built. It was not, you know, if you go to the Timberline Lodge in in Oregon and stay there, uh, the inside looks complete. Doesn't look anything like what they did. And and there is no structure that is built the way the inside of this book or this uh, hotel is, is built. Uh, there are uh, impossible hallways that, that lead into areas that they shouldn't. The structural uh, uh, the structural uh, design of the, of the whole uh, hotel is, is just wrong. Like there's no way that the, the, if you actually follow it and try to map it out and, and there are, if you look online, there's tons of people who have done this, the, the layout doesn't make sense. And in fact, uh, the office where, uh, where he goes for his interview, there's a window behind the guy. But when you look, there shouldn't be a window. Should there should not be a window. There's a, yeah. there's a it's hallway. It's an interior wall. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this is all, I mean, this has all been talked about it was talked about on that room 237 or uh the movie room 237 um now matt i will i will say i'm looking on the uh stanley hotels uh website and this is an alert back on 2015 it says the hotel will soon have another attraction they will be building a hedge maze on the front lawn similar to the one in the movie where jack nicholson's character met his uh, demise yeah, well, that's the Stanley Hotel. Um, right. The 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 Timberline is where they shot the movie, though. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. I I, I thought you were talking about the Timberline. Um. So, I, and he actually, I'm not sure why they chose not to shoot at the Stanley because the Stanley's a pretty cool looking. Um, oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, building. It's and the the Timberline <clears throat> is just a little odd, but I there must have been a reason why he he chose that he, for visual reasons or whatever. Uh, but yeah, no, there's obviously a disorienting idea, uh, you know, a feeling when you go into this, this, uh, this hotel, because the, the hallways don't make sense. The structure doesn't make sense. Uh, the kid rolling around on his big wheel or tricycle or whatever it was that he was riding, uh, going around different hallways and stuff like that, that they're impossible. It's an impossible, impossible structure. Um, but that gives you this sense of otherworldliness and uh, everything else. Um, that brings me to Room 237, the documentary, which I also watched, and I think you did too. Yes, I um, did. And <clears throat> I, I had not seen it. I had seen clips uh, of it. People had posted on Facebook or whatever and uh, over the years, uh, or I'd seen little clips of it on YouTube, I, I believe. So I'd never actually watched the movie because I just really wasn't that interested in the theories that they came up with. And and I, I just felt like it was going to be a lot of hoo-ha. And it was. It's it's full of a lot of hoo-ha. I mean, there's... I see, when I, was, when I found out they were making this Room 237, I was just enamored. I could not wait to dive into these theories. After seeing them, I think they're all crap. Yeah, but I was I was immediately drawn to this. Oh no, I was. I mean, when I heard about it originally, I I was too, and yeah. and so I thought, oh, that, that that's cool. You know, I'd love to see what they think. But I mean, it's a lot of stuff that's just based on like you know he's wearing you know a uh, the Apollo eleven Apollo eleven sweater. Yeah. So that must mean that Stanley Kubrick faked, faked the, the moon, moon landing. landing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and 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 that was literally about the 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 level of evidence that they were using for most of their theories. Now, the, obviously, uh, Stanley Kubrick, all of his movies are like this. You could, if you set out to say that this movie is about chipmunks uh, stealing from rabbits, 
you could probably find uh, theory evidence to support it. Yeah, yeah, evidence in there that would be like, hey, why was it like this? Um, you could just make up your own theory and then just go to one of his movies and find things because he didn't like to explain everything. And I that's one of the things that I love about Kubrick. And and those are the kinds of movies I like. I love David Lynch movies and 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 movies where you don't necessarily know everything that's happening or why it's happening. You just know that something weird is going on. And so I really like that in my horror, especially. And that's the way The Shining is. We don't necessarily need to, you know, there's a big question as to whether it's really haunted or if a lot of this is going on in their heads. I think it really is maybe a combination, but I, I think it is haunted. But you're free to believe something else if you want to. And he doesn't give you your answers. You uh, come to your own conclusions with a with a Stanley Kubrick movie. 2001 A Space Odyssey is the same way. The ending of that or the last act of that movie is all just, you know, uh, abstract, uh, imp- almost impressionist kind of filmmaking. And and so it's really left up to the viewer to, to arrive at a conclusion on what exactly happened there, you know. Um, and and the, I, I feel like that adds to the unsettling feeling you get with The Shining because answers aren't given. You kind of have to just think, why did this happen? What's going on? You know? Now, I don't want people to think that I'm trying to steer them away from watching Room 237. I do think it's a fascinating documentary. And one thing that I can appreciate that it does very well is it really points out specificities in this film. It really makes you pay attention to the most minute detail, things that you normally would have missed. Now, for example, I, I'm not talking about the different, like how he's positioning the different cans of Tang or Calumet uh, baking powder on the shelves. There's one in particular that I always thought was fascinating, and it's not really a theory. It's just something that I never would have thought about, which is there's a scene where Danny is playing with his trucks and cars on that classic uh, patterned carpeting, and there's a ball that gets rolled to him, and it's rolled perfectly down the center, and it follows the pattern of the carpeting perfectly. I mean, they must have spent hours just trying to get that ball to roll perfectly. And then when he picks it up, the camera pans away. And then when it cuts back to Danny, that path, that brown stripe that the ball originally followed isn't there. It's like they picked up the camera angle and turned completely 180 degrees around and then showed his perspective from a completely different angle. I don't know why he did that. I never would have caught that if I hadn't seen Room 237, but he did it. And Stanley Kubrick must have had a very good reason for doing it. And I think just psychologically, it's just to make you feel uneasy. Yeah. You know, I, something's different. I think so. That I think there were times when, uh, you know, that may have been a choice. I do think there were some continuity issues. Uh, for instance, in the movie, they point out a moment where, uh, Wendy comes down and talk and starts uh, talking to uh, Jack while he's typing. And there's a table and chairs or a table and a sitting chair behind him. And at one point there, it, you can see it behind him while it, when, when he's talking uh, and then they cut back to her talking and then they cut back to him and it's gone. Then they cut back to her and then they cut back to him and it's back again. Uh, and, I think that was just an honest continuity error. Um, but the one, the, the other one, the, 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 uh, the carpet one, I think may have been a choice. Um, but who knows, you know, he's not here to tell us why he did that. And he would, and he wouldn't be the kind of director to say, Oh, he would never explain himself. Yeah. 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 Uh, although you bring a very interesting point too. What about the typewriter? They point out in room 237 that there is more than one typewriter on that table. It changes color. Hmm. Now, that's something that I can't imagine that on the set they would have said, oh, let's use a different one on accident. Or they had more than one typewriter just laying around. That had to have been a conscious choice. Yeah, it's it's hard to say because one of the things about Stanley Kubrick movies is that 
he shoots for a long time. I think they were shooting this movie for 14 months or something like that. And so part of the problem is that, that they may have shot part of that scene uh, or the whole scene, you know, in February, <laughs> you know, for instance, and then decided to come back to it in November. And in the meantime, you know how it is in theater. Uh, they may have lost, a, a, you know, lost a, a typewriter. So it's hard to say. I don't know. Like, um, Actually, I do have a theory about that. Yeah. Just specifically about what you just said. Because they were taking so long. There's also a scene in Room 237 where they show Kubrick uh, typing on a yeah. typewriter. Yeah. And I'm wondering if he was like, oh, I got to put some thoughts down. And he took the actual typewriter and he was too busy using it. And yeah. he wouldn't want to give it up. So he said, just get me another damn typewriter. Yeah, it could be. It's, it, you know, who knows? But um, I, it, I mean, I don't want to discourage anybody from watching. I know a lot of people like Room 237. I didn't feel like, you know, I was expecting some mind-blowing theories and, and I didn't feel like there was anything mind-blowing about it. I do think there that, and it was funny because I don't know that the filmmakers necessarily believe anything. I think they, I think the point of the whole documentary was to show how many interpretations can be had from a Kubrick movie, really, when it comes down to it, especially this one. And just to present them. And I think part of the point is to to hear the the what because he did have some that were really not theories at all. That was just there was one woman talking who was just presenting um all of her thoughts about the movie and how it was constructed and that sort of thing. And it was it was really just a filmmaking critique. Uh, and then you get you have uh, opinions like that that range from from kind of almost academic to you know wild conspiracy weirdness uh, like the moon landing, the moon landing and all that yeah. stuff. Um, so anyway, I, I don't want to get too far into this movie because we're talking about The Shining, but it it, it is interesting. It, there are a few parts of it that are legitimately interesting to to hear what people thought of but also it's as just an exercise in uh people kind of uh almost confirmation bias uh finding things to confirm what they want to be true um it's kind of interesting to see that too hey speaking of interesting um i did find out that to get jack nicholson in the right agitated mood they fed him only cheese sandwiches for two weeks, and he hates cheese sandwiches. Oh, jeez. That's funny. <laughs> uh, I also read that um, that scene with the uh, with the door, breaking down the door. Uh, it took him three days to film that, and they used 60 different doors. Wow. Because originally the prop department, they built a door for him to break down that was supposed to be like balsa wood. You know, something really easy to chop through. But uh, Jack Nicholson had worked as a volunteer fire marshal, and he just broke through the door way too easy. Hmm. So the prop department had to go back and get actual, you know, not full solid wood doors, but something midway, you know, something that he'd have to put a little effort into. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and and that brings me to what, something I was also going to say is that Kubrick is fam was famous for uh for some scenes, some scenes not, but it, for a lot of scenes, doing take after take, 50 takes was not uncommon uh, for him. And, and it, the first one might have been perfect, but he'd want to do it over and over and over and just see what different kinds of uh, performances he could get out of someone. And then uh, certain scenes he would only do a couple times. He just never knew uh, from what I've read anyway. Um, but wasn't that that scene with the baseball bat? Isn't that like the like the most reshot scene yeah. in movie history? Isn't it like 138 times? Yeah, to get I think it right? so. Yeah, and well, he he had them redo a lot of Shelley Duvall's scenes, uh, which was part of the reason why she probably was so believable in that you know uh, losing her marbles uh, on screen. She was losing her hair. Well, yeah, yeah. She was so right. stressed out. She was suffering from hair loss because of it. Yeah. Uh, and so I also recommend everyone to go and you can find this on YouTube. I recommend going on and uh, finding the making of The Shining, uh, which was actually um, shot and directed uh, by Stanley Kubrick's daughter, I believe. Um, 
Uh, and and so it's it gives you a little uh, background on uh, the making of the movie and and uh, it gives you some behind the scenes shots too. And I I don't want to skip over the TV movie remake because that's for as much as I hate it, uh, it's still an important piece of this puzzle. Uh, because of Stephen King's distaste for Kubrick's movie, he decided, you know, I, I want it to be told the way I wrote it. And so they ended up doing a made-for-TV or TV series version of this in 1997 uh, with Rebecca De Mornay and Stephen Weber from Wings. And, you know, nobody's scarier than Stephen Weber from Wings, <laughs> except for Cortland Mead. The kid that played Danny Torrance with the world's worst haircut. I, it, when I saw this, I actually wanted Jack Torrance to just kill that kid because I thought he was the worst actor I had ever seen. I had no uh, empathy for that kid at all whatsoever. I probably wouldn't have even made it to the hotel if I was his dad. I would have pulled over and let him out. He, he'd be like on, on the lake somewhere, halfway there. But... You kind of, you know, if you really want to check all the boxes and make sure you've done all your homework, I mean, everybody sat through it one time or another, but go find The Shining, the, you know, it's, it's tough to suffer through, but to consider yourself a completist in this realm, go, go watch it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely not something that uh, you can compare the two very well because they're very different for one thing. Uh, Stephen King uh, prefers the television version um, for sure. He, he uh, well, obviously he was involved in the making of it. It's directed by Mick Garris, who uh, is, is a very good director. And um, he actually has a really good podcast too uh, called, um, Something with Mick Garris. I can't remember exactly what it's called now, but uh, an interesting name. Yeah, uh, but he interviews a lot of people uh, in in the horror field on that, and he always has really good guests. So it's worth checking out. He does it. I think he usually does like one episode a month or something like that. But um, he he has some pretty good guests on there. I actually all the major um, people in horror, including Stephen King himself. But um, but I just yeah, it's hard to get into that and. Uh, Stephen Weber, I really like him. I, I think he's funny, and I and I think he did a as good a job as he could playing that part on a television made for television show. Uh, but it, part of the reason that he was cast was because he um, he was really the only one who would do it. What was that? <laughs> Car in the background. Oh, <laughs> it's like. Hmm. Uh, but I was like, where is that sound coming from? Uh, but, um, but yeah, he was, he was like the, the only person that they could, it, people were turning it down just because it, that part is just associated with Jack Nicholson. Like, what are you going to well, do? Well, yeah. I, you know? Look at what you're going up against. Like, oh, I'm going to carry the torch even further than Jack Nicholson could. No, forget it. It's, it's a losing battle. There's no way it could be done. But Stephen Weber tried. <laughs> Yeah, that's for sure. So, um, and then the, uh, uh, what else were we going to talk? You know, I, one of the things that I want to talk about too is just, just the pacing of this movie is just, it's so unsettling. And the, the, the transitions that Kubrick uses between scenes, the, the sort of cross dissolve, um, crossfade dissolve editing in certain scenes where it you know you'd have a shot of Jack uh interviewing in that office and and then it dissolves into a different scene someplace else and I know that in room 237 they tried to uh, come up with reasons why he used that cross dissolve uh but I I think it was more I I, I you know as I looked at as I watched this uh, watched The Shining this time. Tried to find reasons why he used the the that slow dissolve uh, in some cuts, and and then a quick jump cut or or a, a faster cut in other scenes. And I really could not come up with like a thematic reason for it. Uh, other, the only thing I could think of is just that he has a feel for what scenes 
um, he wants to use that uh, that dissolve for and and what scenes he doesn't and 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 kind of often it's used as a sort of way to to show kind of a synchronicity between what's happening in one scene and what's going to happen in the next scene. But in this case, I didn't really feel like that was the case. I, I felt like it was just a sense of pacing that he has um, that and 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 that cross dissolve so slow. Uh, from one shot to the next kind of gives you this weird um, uh, reveal in what's coming. And I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that there was a thematic reason for doing it, but I, I do think it does keep the viewer on edge yeah. because it's messing with the pacing so much. It's almost like a visual jump scare, right? A transitional jump scare. You know, you you become so used to and accustomed to watching these very slow dissolves and transitions, and then when it jumps from the other one, uh, from one scene to the next, it's it it keeps you on edge. Well, and the the jump at the very end to oh sure, Jack the, <laughs> frozen yeah. is you know from you know he's out there with the soundtrack and everything. The, yeah, the, and the, the strings. He's, he's out there in the. Um, He's out in the maze and he finally sits down and you can tell he's given up, he's lost and he's freezing to death. And then it cuts from that right to the shot of him frozen there. And yeah. uh, that's a quick cut. But then other transitions will just be a slow transition. So he does. He likes to play. I think, he, you know, what is it? Uh, um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock said he likes to play his audience like a fiddle. And uh, I think that's that's the, that's what Kubrick does. He sets you up, and then boom, you know, he sets you up with these long, slow dissolves from one scene to the next, and then boom, he he ha- he hits you with a quick cut uh, right at the right moment. Um, so he just had a feel for that sort of thing. Uh, and then, of course, the use of Steadicam, which at the time Steadicam was not uh, widely used in films. Um, and uh, that was a uh, the you know he was he was just playing with concepts, playing with tools, uh, his toys of filmmaking, and um, it's it's interesting because that the documentary that his daughter did, you get to see him choose an angle to shoot that scene, you know, the check it out, check it out, you know, that scene and it when Jack is locked in the in the um it's not a cooler but it's uh, a pantry yeah it's like a pantry walk-in pantry yeah um and he decides he de- decides to shoot it from underneath and tells him hey could you look this way and everything um that i thought i thought that was really interesting but some of those decisions he just sort of was making on the fly you know uh and and not really. I I don't know that it, it 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 didn't seem like anyway he had planned that or it had had it storyboarded. And I'm not sure if he used storyboards or not. Um, I didn't see any in that documentary, but it was pretty interesting. I thought. Now I think we'd also be remiss if we didn't go forward a little bit more and discuss Doctor Sleep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was one that. I was fortunate enough to read the book before I saw the movie. I heard there was a sequel, and I participated in the same collective groan as everybody else did. Like, you had a perfect story. Uh, of course, I, you know, when I hear perfect story, I'm still thinking about the movie, not the book. But uh, there is a continuation of it, and it's basically Danny, you know, years and years and years later, um, surviving on his own and still dealing with his demons. And uh, it's... The book, I, I really enjoyed the book. I thought the pacing actually improved quite a bit. It wasn't as much of a laborious read. And uh, I was thrilled when I found out they were going to be making a movie. And I don't think it's bad. It's obviously nowhere near on the same level as a Shining movie. But uh, I really did like the inclusion of the Overlook Hotel. And I thought they did a fantastic job recreating that entire um, the scene, making the the going through every detail to try to match it up to the, uh, to the shining. And, uh, I, I certainly think that's something, again, if you're a completist, you have to watch that movie. Oh, definitely. I think it's, um, I, you know, I, th- I feel like it was, uh, sort of, uh, I, I don't want to say a happy medium, but it was a, a, a kind of a bridge from the original book 
to the original movie. You know, it it sort of had element. It had a feeling. Uh, Stephen King describes his book, The Shining, as being warm, and that the movie Kubrick's movie of The Shining is being cold. Right, uh, the way it's shot's very cold. The way it's edited's very cold. The acting—it's very—it's a very cold film. Uh, the the um, uh, the even even down to the uh, I guess the filters on the camera and everything. The very cold look about it too. You know, obviously the snow and everything, but that's in the book as well. His he he felt like his movie was or his book was a warmer book. It uh, Kubrick's movie ends frozen in ice. Uh, his book ends in fire, right? Um, because the the Overlook Hotel in the mo- in his book explodes. So sure. Um, so that whole part wasn't in the book, Doctor Sleep. That whole back to the yeah. Uh, they rewrote all that into right. just the movie, just, just to for, tie them together, right? Yeah. Because yeah. there's no way to do a movie that's a sequel to The Shining without acknowledging Kubrick's movie. There's just, you know, there's just no way. Um, you can't yeah. acknowledge the TV movie, certainly. No, nobody watches the I TV. I try not to. Yeah. <laughs> nobody watches the TV movie yearly, right? Um, so, you know, every people watch The Shining yearly or every couple years or whatever, but nobody does that with the TV movie. And if you're ever fortunate enough to see the reprint of The Shining in 4K in theaters, as Matt and I did, Highly recommend it. It is just gorgeous to watch that opening scene, that helicopter shot uh, on a giant screen television or giant screen, you know, movie theater. It's fantastic. I highly recommend that. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, I the other thing I want to talk about is just what um, because I know we we're starting to get close to time now. But I I did want to say that this movie really packs scares in and not in a jump scare kind of way it's more in the chills up the back of the spine kind of way uh and there are still and i've seen this i don't know how many times i've seen this movie it's it's i wouldn't be surprised if it's in the hundreds maybe um and i still get the chills when those little when the twins are shown uh the shots of the twins uh i i still get the chills when um when uh, uh, Jack goes into room 237 and the, the woman, you know, the, the beautiful woman turns in the, to the old uh, lady. And then uh, even at the end, uh, the shot when, when Wendy is uh, going up the stairs and looks in that room and there's that weird uh, fur the furry is in there, <laughs> you know, that whole thing that gives Plushy. me the chill. The yeah, gives me the chills. And then, uh, there's another shot and I know it's coming. Uh, when she walks down and that guy says, great party, isn't it? You know, that I, part, all of those I, things still give me the chills. I still love the scene where she's running through the hotel and she gets into that. Uh, I believe it's like a waiting room area and it's all blue and it's just skeleton after skeleton and everything's like aged like it should have. And uh, I've always kind of thought that they were, it was like a time suspension thing. Like that's really what the hotel would have looked like when all those people died. If that's, you know, like that's when the hotel died. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the moment when Kubrick gives you your full horror movie, right? Right. Like up to this point, it's been, you know, the crazies building, the ghosts are coming, but they're not scary yet. They're giving him drinks, you know, and things like that. Uh, The other thing I wanted to mention uh, is, Lloyd, the bartender, uh, you know, and this is a little technicality, but uh, Jack orders a bourbon and Lloyd, uh, uh, you know, he pulls out without asking uh, Jack Daniels uh, and Jack Daniel is 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 not a bourbon. Uh, it's a southern mash. It's a, yeah. yeah, it's a, a Tennessee whiskey. Um, now, technically. Jack, there. Jack Daniels is a. Bur- I mean, there's really no difference between what Jack Daniels is and a and a bourbon. Jack Daniel, that company, just insists on being called Tennessee whiskey. They even put it into their licensing and everything. Like they don't want to be called a bourbon. They fought like strenuously not to be called a bourbon. When in reality, everything about it is pretty much a bourbon. Um, and so that's your theory of why he staged the moon landing. 
Yeah. So then from there, I said, well, he had to have staged the moon landing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't know what a bourbon is. <laughs> what kind of madman is that? He had to. Have. So uh, anyway. I, I also, one other uh, scene that I thought was really odd, and this is a Jack Nicholson thing. When Jack Nicholson jumps out from behind the pillar with the axe and puts it right in the chest of Scatman Carruthers, Watch Jack Nicholson's face. It's just really weird. It's almost like he's giving him a raspberry, and he just—I mean—that's the point where he just looks so goofy doing it, like he was trying to go so over the top then. And that's the cut that they took. That just seemed like a really odd choice. But it's—that's the one scene in the movie that just creeps me out over and over again. Jack's face. Hmm. I'll have to check it out. I don't think I've ever yeah, noticed it's weird. That. Uh. So, but yeah, like I said, it's just, I think it, the scares are there, but they're a different kind of scare. Uh, and you know, it does go full on horror. Um, and he gives you your cake and lets you eat it too, but you gotta, you gotta work for it. You gotta get there. Um, I, I know some people find it boring. Um, I know not everybody loves it, but I think m- this is probably, um, especially among horror movie, horror movie fans, I can't imagine anybody who's a true horror movie fan who just doesn't love it. Um, so, Joe, we have come to towards the end, and we're at that moment when I need to do a ghost story. Hey, before you get into that, I have one more little tidbit. Oh, okay. and I don't, I don't know if you've seen this, but I will make sure that we put a link to this on our Facebook page. But there was something scarier than The Shining, and it is one of the scariest things I've ever seen in my life. It was a parody uh, of The Shining called The Chickening. Have you seen this? I have not seen this, no. I cannot wait until I send you the link to this and you see it. This is the most terrifying thing I've ever seen in my life, and you will absolutely love it. So for those of you listening to the podcast, make sure when you're done, go back to the Cinescare Facebook page. I'll make sure we put a link to it. The the chickening now is the this chickening. is this supposed to be funny or you said it's actually scary? It's it's supposed to be funny, but it's the most terrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. You know, like how people think clowns are scary. This is just so bizarre that it's it's frightening, terrifying. Is it is, is this something that can be found on Amazon Prime or something or or it's it's on YouTube. Oh, I'll put a link to the YouTube video. It's only like five minutes long. Well, I will have to check it out. Yeah. Uh, are we ready, Joe, for the for a ghost story? I'm strapped in and ready to go. Because uh, to keep up with our theme, I am, of course, uh, going to be talking about the actual Stanley Hotel ghosts. Uh, the Stanley Hotel uh, is the place uh, that uh, actually Stephen King wrote. The Shining, or at least got his ideas for The Shining. I'm not sure if he wrote The Shining there. Um, In the 1970s, the Stanley Hotel was experiencing a downward spiral. Its splendor had faded. There's no sound effect for faded, by the way, Joe. Uh, Sure there is. (laughs) Oh, I don't know about that. Uh, Just fade your volume down. (laughs) With other accommodations with more modern amenities like heat and air conditioning. (laughs) What? (laughs) Who wants that, right? I don't have any sound effects for heat and air conditioning, though. No. No. Um, I suppose you could have chattering teeth or, man, hot enough. You could do, like, here, I'll do a nerdy voice. Is that hot enough for you? Perfect. Uh, it also had a reputation of being haunted, which wasn't a choice selling point back then. The Stanley seemed doomed from the rec- for the wrecking ball until 1974 when an up-and-coming horror author checked in with his wife. That fateful night would not only elevate the literary horror genre and set Stephen King on his path to greatness, but it completely altered the destiny of the Stanley Hotel. So, uh, the Stanley Hotel has been called the Disneyland for ghosts, Joe. Hiya, folks! Uh, And not in the fun way. It's fun for them, not fun for you. It has hosted countless paranormal investigations, including teams from channel from the Travel Channel's Ghost Adventures and Sci-Fi's Ghost Hunters. I mean, the professionals are at it, Joe. The professionals are there working on it. Um, there's nothing to fear. If Zach Baggins is there, nothing to fear. And his brother Bilbo. <laughs> but a bump. 
Um, or you could use an actual, but I'm pumped. I probably won't. Okay. Or you could just use my loop. Use my, yours, yeah. yeah. Uh, guests can get in touch. Oh, I'm sorry. Guests can get in on the action with the Stanley's Ghost Adventure Package. Wow. How um, much? It doesn't say, Joe. Where it's they worth are, every penny. It must be, yeah. Um, where they are assigned a room on the fourth floor, complete with ghost hunting equipment, a mug with the famous message, Red Rum. Ghostly occurrences are reported in almost every room. Room 217. Now, Joe, the movie used 237, and that was right. because the Timberline Lodge, where they shot the exterior shots, didn't want them to use an actual room number that was in that hotel, uh, in case the movie became a big deal. Um, uh, 217 is where S- Stephen King actually stayed. Right. That's where he stayed it gets confusing because he actually stayed in the Stanley Hotel, which is in Estes Park, Colorado. Right. Uh, the the exterior shots of the Overlook Hotel for the movie were shot at the Timberline Lodge in Oregon. Uh, so it gets confusing. The Timberline Lodge did not have a room 237, so Stanley Kubrick decided, okay, I'll use room 237. Um in 1911, there was a large storm. It was a it was a lightning storm, Joe. Lots of heavy rain, thunder, rolling. Do you, you notice the the little things on your head? I'm I'm tingling with anticipation. The head house the head housekeepers, uh, the head of the housekeepers, Mrs. Wilson, was lighting the lanterns in room 217 when there was an explosion. Apparently there was a gas leak. These were back in the days when they had gas, uh, light, uh, gas lamps, and the, apparently the the lamp in that room had a leak, a gas leak, and it exploded. Uh, Mrs. Wilson was blown th- down through the floor, actually, and somehow she, uh, I believe, she survived. Um, wow. Yeah. Tough um, old broad. Believe it or not, she survived with only broken ankles. So, yeah, she was tough. She could handle an explosion that sent her through the floor. Um, Now she spends most of her afterlife still taking care of the room. Guests have reported items being moved, large luggage being dragged. (laughs) Laundry being folded. Yes, and lights being turned on and off. Mrs. Wilson is very old-fashioned, and she is not a fan of unmarried guests sleeping in the same bed. So some couples have reported feeling a cold force come between them. When they wake up, they often find that the man's things have been packed with his luggage by the door. Actor Jim Carrey stayed in room 217 when the Stanley Hotel was used for filming in his film Dumb and Dumber, which I didn't realize that was the hotel they stayed at. He, re- he reportedly got so spooked that he ran from the room half naked. You can use your guy screaming voice for that. In the middle of the night, some of the film's crew also got the creeps in this room. Uh, there is a vortex, apparently, Joe. Uh, the stunning staircase between floors in, this, in the hotel's lobby has been dubbed the vortex. It is a tornado of spiritual energy. Sort of a paranormal portal for all the ghosts that have visited the hotel. Um, yeah, there's also a pet cemetery. I don't know if you knew this, Joe. I thought you were going to say petting zoo. <laughs> <laughs> no, the haunted petting zoo. Yeah. You know, one time I have to tell you about the time that I went to a petting zoo and a llama and a donkey cornered me when I was a little kid. They cornered me and the the llama kept spitting on me and the donkey wouldn't let me get away. I've never gotten over that. Talk about horrifying. It was horrifying, actually. It was at North Park, North Park Mall. They had a little petting zoo. And, and a donkey and a llama cornered me in the corner of the pen. And the, the llama was spitting on me while the donkey was kind of keeping me. Hey, what are you going to do? If it makes you feel any better, I just tried llama jerky like two weeks ago. Oh. Well, I do. We Hopefully, got even. Especially yeah. if it was that llama. It was delicious. <laughs> the Stanley Hotel is a top destination for ghost hunters, horror fans, adventure seekers, health enthusiasts. I don't know why they slip that in there. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to stay overnight. They have a great gym. <laughs> and they have a wonderful gym. <laughs> the haunted gym. You yeah. don't have to stay overnight to experience all the hotel has to offer. Tours are available daily. 
But beware, you may have an extra guest while you're there. Do you have to pay extra for that? <laughs> uh, I would hope not, Joe, because yeah. I don't I don't think that would uh, be very kind. Kids stay free. All right, Joe, I think we've done it. We have, we have finished off The Shining. People will never be able to watch this movie the same way again. And I still think our episode is far better than the TV movie version of The Shining. Oh, I I would watch I would watch well, I wouldn't watch I would listen to this every year. I will never watch the TV <laughs> movie. I might watch it again sometime. I probably should have for this, but I just couldn't bring myself to no, do it. No. I would rather watch uh Drive-In Massacre than watch that again. I, I will say I did like Dr. Sleep. I thought it was a good movie. I did enjoy it. Uh, I, I think I probably liked the parts before they got to the Overlook better than the Overlook part. I, the, Certainly. The first time I watched it, it was great to see it, and it was like reliving that. Um, but there's also, did, have you seen uh, Ready Player One? Yes, and, with the uh, the bathroom yeah. scene in that. Yeah, yeah actually, they have a, was... a, a really good uh, shining uh, scene in that. I liked it. And actually, that's what got my son into wanting to watch The Shining is because he had seen Ready Player One. He read the book, hmm. saw the movie, and he's like, "Oh, I got to see the rest of this." Yeah, no, I it was I, a gateway I, drug. I just loved it. I thought I thought that that whole part of it was great. I liked the movie too, but that part of it was really great. I thought. Yeah. All right, Joe. Well, we've done it. We've done it uh, for another week, and uh, I guess. Next time will be our thirteenth episode, and I and I know we had talked about doing a. What could we possibly do for episode thirteen? <laughs> I just can't imagine what we might have on our in our brains. They'll just have to tune in in two weeks and find out. Yep, for episode thirteen, and we may have a special guest. Uh, well, especially <laughs> more than special. one <laughs> more than one yeah. way, um, but we'll have to see uh, if. Well, I'm sure he's, he's available. I'm sure he's available. So uh, we will have. I have not broached the subject to this person, but I have a feeling he will want to be a part of he's it. He's probably been waiting by the phone since episode one, waiting for us to call him. Yeah, probably. So I, I know none of you know what we're talking about, but you will soon find out, and it'll be a fun episode. Uh, that'll be in two weeks. So until then, uh, have a good time, and we will see you later. Good night, everybody. Good night. Welcome to Char Bay's Chicken World and Restaurant Resort. Here's Johnny. Ah!